You're listening to a Women's History Association of Ireland podcast. In this podcast, a paper from Besieged Bodies, Gendered Violence, Sexualities and Motherhood, the Women's History Association of Ireland's annual conference for 2020-2021. This online conference took place on four Fridays in March 2021 and was supported by the UCD Decade of Centenaries Fund, the UCD School of History, the UCD School of Gender Studies, UCD Centre for Gender Feminisms and Sexualities and the UCD College of Arts and Humanities Fund. This podcast is produced in association with History Hub. To listen to other papers and conference keynotes, go to historyhub.ie. The WHAI conference was organised by Dr Mary McAuliffe from UCD Gender Studies and Dr Fanula Walsh from UCD School of History. This podcast features the third keynote, which is given by Dr Sinead Kennedy, Maynooth University. Dr. Kennedy's paper, Antigone's Daughters, Gender, Reproduction and the Irish State, was chaired by Dr. Fanula Walsh from UCD. You're very welcome to um, our final session of day three of the Women's History Association annual conference. Um, and it's been another um, really, really great day. Um, and we've been delighted with, with the papers and today's conversation and, and all the discussion that's been happening. Um, we're very excited to have our third keynote speaker, um, third keynote session um, of the conference now. Um, so we have um, Dr. Sinead Kennedy, um, who's a lect- lecturer in the Department of English at Manish University. Um, her publications include No Country for Young Women, Reproducing the Irish State, um, and Una Frawley's Women and Decade Commemorations, which has just been published. Um, the Right to Know, Gender, Power, Reproduction and Knowledge Regulation in Ireland, in Mary Corcoran and Pauline Cullen's book, Producing Knowledge, Reproducing Gender, Power, Production, and practice in contemporary Ireland. She's co-editor of the Abortion Papers, um, Volume 2, published in 2015, and she's currently completing a book on the cultural history of Ireland's Eighth Amendment. She's the co-founder with Alva Smith of the Coalition to Repeal the Eighth Amendment and head of research for Together for Yes, which of course was the National Civil Society campaign to remove the Eighth Amendment. Um, And now she's going to be talking to us about Antigone's daughters, gender, reproduction, and the Irish state. Um, So over to you, Sinead. Thanks very much, Vanilla, for that very um, warm and generous uh, welcome. Um, I'd like to begin by thanking um, Fanula and Mary um, for inviting me and for all the hard work that they've done um, in pulling together in very difficult and challenging circumstances, such a really wonderful, um, uh, thought-provoking uh, conference. And um, it's been it's been a real pleasure to hear um, all these wonderful papers. And I was just saying that... Um, has been really, uh, I know it's perhaps not ideal that we don't get to um, meet face to face, but um, it's been a really great opportunity um, to hear um, so many of the papers that probably um, with um, the teaching commitments and that I know I, I normally wouldn't have gotten to hear quite so many. So I'd like to just begin by uh, by thanking uh, by thanking them. There is uh, something about Antigone. Two and a half thousand years after she was created, she continues to confound. But who is Antigone? First and foremost, she is a work of dramatic fiction. We know her as the figure from Sophocles' play who defies the state in the person of her uncle, King Creon, who has forbidden her to bury her brother, Polynices. But her existence has long transcended her dramatic origins in ancient Greece, and she has been made into a representative of sorts, interpreted in myriad ways, For Hegel, she represented the ethical value of the family against the state. For George Eliot, the strength of intellect against society. Virginia Woolf viewed her as a proto-feminist. And for Anouy, during the French resistance, the rejection of tyranny, while others have called her a terrorist. Within the 20th century literary imagination, in particular, she has emerged as a definitive symbol of the conflict between the individual and the modern state, and continues to be read as a figure that appears at the borders of the political, troubling the boundaries between politics and kinship, between the the state and the family. From the late 20th century onwards, um, Antigone emerged as a key figure in feminist political theory, largely influenced by um, second wave feminism. Here she emerges as an icon of defiance, despite the fact that the vast majority of the celebrated appropriations of Antigone are by men. 
A further paradox emerges when we consider the position of Athenian aristocratic women who led extremely restricted lives and yet played prominent roles in Greek tragedy. This paradox struck Virginia Woolf forcefully in a room of one's own. She writes, if a woman had no existence, save in the fiction written by men, one would imagine her a person of the utmost importance, very various, heroic and mean, splendid and sordid, infinitely beautiful and hideous in the extreme, as great as a man, some think even greater. But this woman is in fiction. In fact, she was locked up, beaten and flung about the rooms. A very queer composite being thus emerges. Imaginatively, she is of the highest importance. Practically, she is completely insignificant. She pervades poetry from cover to cover. She is all but absent from history. She dominates the lives of kings and conquerors in fiction. In fact, she was a slave of any boy whose parents fixed a ring upon her finger. Some of the most inspired words, some of the most profound thoughts in literature fall from her lips. In real life, she could hardly read, could scarcely spell, and was the property of her husband. This paradox was also registered by many feminist political scholars. Locating the silence of women in political life with the volubility of fictional women. However, they also found that Antigone could be removed from this paradox, her legacy redefined, her revolutionary significance recuperated and liberated for a progressive feminism and sexual politics. They identified Antigone's heroism with her opposition to the state on behalf of the claims of kinship and family bonds. In the aftermath of the 1983 abortion referendum, which inserted a ban on abortion into the Irish constitution by effectively equating the life of the fetus or the unborn with that of the pregnant woman or mother, as she's written in the constitution, Antigone appears for the first time on the Irish stage. Three plays by Tom Paulin, The Riot Act, Brendan Kennelly, Antigone, A New Version, and Aidan Carl Matthews, Antigone, A Version, were, uh, were written. Pat Murphy's film, Anne Devlin, was also completed in 1984 and interpreted as indirectly referencing Antigone, although Murphy herself has, has rejected the analogy. In the same year, Athol Fugard's The Island was performed at the gate. Another play based on Antigone where two prisoners play Antigone in prison in an effort to keep their sanity in the midst of the insanity of apartheid in South Africa. But who is Antigone? Why did she appear for the first time in the Ireland of the 1980s? And can she speak to us in an effort to explore the relationship between gender, reproduction and the Irish state? The French feminist Lucie Ugaret insists that Antigone's example is always worth reflecting upon as a historical figure and as an identity and identification for many girls and women living today. For this reflection, we must abstract Antigone from the seductive, reductive discourses and listen to what she has to say about government of the polis, its orders and its laws. So if we are to follow Irrigate's imperative and listen to what Antigone can tell us about the state and its laws, what do we learn when we explore these questions through the prism of gender and reproduction? Irish historians working in women's history have done important work, particularly within the last decade, in drawing attention to the erasure of women from Irish history. However, their work also reminds us that it is not simply enough to rewrite or reinscribe women back into history. We need to deconstruct the history itself. As the historian Elizabeth Fox Genovese writes, women's history challenges mainstream history, not to substitute the chronicle of the female subject for that of the male, but rather to restore conflict and ambiguity and tragedy to the center 
of the historical process, to explore the varied and unequal terms upon which gender, classes and races participate in, in the forging of a common destiny. Back in 2016, I attended a lecture for International Women's Day given by the American, African-American activist Angela Davis in Queen's University, Belfast. There, David Ar Davis argues that the minoritization of women, people of color, trans individuals, LGBT, LGBTQI people, is designed to compel us to think of these problems as other or as marginal. In other words, not the central problem and certainly not real problems. Davis argues that in her experience, both as an activist and as an academic, she has found that the greatest insights come from the issues that appear most marginal because they render visible the ideological work of institutional and state apparatuses. Women's experiences in particular reveal the intersection of institutional violence and intimate violence. And by focusing on these issues, we can gain important insights into wider structural and institutional problems. So taking my lead from Angela Davis, I want to argue that focusing on questions of gender and reproduction allows us to redefine in fundamental ways <clears throat> the accepted hist uh, historical categories of Irish life and to make visible hidden structures of domination and exploitation. What image of the Irish state emerges when it is considered from the perspective of the female body? How do women navigate a state that conceives as central to its raison d'etre the control and regulation of the female body and its reproductive capacities. In addressing these questions of the relationship between women and the state, the figure of Antigone has allowed feminist thinkers to address these questions in creative and significant ways. Judith Butler's work in Antigone's claim is particularly helpful and insightful here. Butler is interested in Antigone as a liminal figure between the family and the state, between life and death. This is essentially the choice she must make in her defiance of Creon, and she chooses the latter. But she is also a figure like her king, who represents the non-normative family, a set of kinship relationships that seem to defy the standard model. Antigone is the, the daughter of Oedipus. Butler's claim, uh, Butler's claim of Antigone as a radical figure for feminist politics um, is, uh, is, is, is not to point to a politics of representation, but to explore the political possibility that emerges when the limits of representation and representability are exposed. So let's turn our attention for a few minutes to the Irish state. The Irish state's regulation and containment of the female body became central to the project of national identity formation, with the female body coming to represent the repressed histories and political desires of the state by forcing women to live their lives invisibly, regulated to the margins, elided from the historical narrative, existing in what visual artists Sarah Brown and Jesse Jones have termed the shadow of the state. In the struggle for definition and identity for the fledgling partitioned Irish state, there was unsurprisingly a deliberate, ideologically driven attempt to define Ireland as not England. This led to a search for distinguishing marks of Irish identity in which Catholicism and women's reproductive sexuality would become key. This was not inevitable, but rather the political logic of the counter-revolutionary forces that came to dominate within the Irish state following the Civil War. Brenda Gray and Louise Ryan suggest that in their desire to create a new imagined community within the boundaries of the 26th county state, 
the leaders of the newly uh, of the new state fashioned a seamlessly homogenous society that closed off internal challenges and contradictions, even as they represented society as pure and untainted by external corruption. The state adopted Catholicism as one of its principal regulating ideologies, which also served to confer upon it a necessary legitimacy as a new post-colonial state. A number of legal measures designed to erase women from public life were introduced, including the jury bills of 1924 and 1927, the Civil Service Amendment Act of 1925, the Conditions of Employment Act of 1935. Through the banning of abortion, um, divorce, and the sale and importation of contraception, women's sexuality was channeled into childbearing within marriage and family life in the home. The results of these measures, Marianne Volubus notes, were that women's political, economic, and reproductive rights were so severely curtailed so as to make it clear and explicit that women were barred from claiming for themselves a political subjectivity, a public identity. Within the 1937 constitution, the institutions of marriage and the family enjoyed a privileged position, as we see from Article 41 of um, uh, the Irish Constitution on the family. The family imagined in these articles is highly gendered, where the special role of women within the private home is elevated as an ideal. Ruth Riddick has observed that the terms woman and mother are understood here as interchangeable in the Irish constitution, demonstrated by the rhetorical shift in the constitution from 2-1 to 2-2, where um, um, in 2-1 uh, we've got woman gives to the sedate, and in 2-2 that becomes uh, um, the word mother is substituted for woman, as if these two terms are, inter are, inter are interchangeable. Uh, we see the, the same thing in, um, uh, in the Eighth Amendment, where um, the word uh, mother is substituted for woman. Considered as a totality, these legislative and constitutionally designated gender roles implied that women's key role is to reproduce and indirectly to reproduce the nation. This regulatory framework for sexuality was certainly not unique to Ireland, and in some ways it was not dissimilar to post-war ideological efforts visible in many European countries to recenter women's lives back within the domestic sphere. Sociologist Tom Inglis contends that Irish prudery around sexuality can be located within, quote, the wider context of Victorian attitudes to women, marriage and the family. But he notes what is significant in, our, in Ireland is how long this Victorian regime lasted and how deeply it seeped into the minds and bodies of the Irish. It is equally important to acknowledge how that sexuality and women's sexuality in particular became an ideological bulwark for the Irish state, which was Catholic, but also capitalist. The regulation of sexuality became one of the key ideological devices through which the new post-colonial state disassociated itself from the revolutionary struggles central to its foundation, including significant socialist and feminist movements. Michael G. Cronin um, argues that for a newly formed state born out of counter-revolutionary struggle, the regulation and control of sexual behavior created a sense of social stability for a state in flux. This regulatory ideal of sexuality became a way of extending the hegemony of the newly empowered Catholic middle classes who emerged as the bearers of this stability and morality. It was society's most marginalized and transgressing bodies poor, infant, and female that were incarcerated into a nexus of church-state institutions that included Magdalene laundries, mother and baby homes, industrial schools and reformatories, and psychiatric hospitals. Cronin writes, the confined and abused body of the young working-class woman or orphan silently but powerfully affirmed the healthy respectability of their youthful middle-class compatriots 
pursuing fulfillment and happiness outside, while serving as an equally powerful warning that the privileges of middle-class youths were always provisional and that maintaining healthy respectability required constant and anxious endeavor. We now know that this vision of the stable traditional family so cherished by Catholic Ireland rested upon a particularly brutal system of containment in which women and their children were considered little more than a commodity for trade amongst religious orders with the full knowledge and complicity of the state. While the effects of this regime were most profoundly experienced by those who either failed or refused to conform to the heteropatriarchal norm, the culture of containment contaminated the whole society so that even those who appeared empowered by the system, where Catherine Conrad reminds us, also held hostage by it, trapped within the family cell. Ongoing debates within Irish cultural studies, James M. Smith um, observes, have reconsidered how the project of national identity formation in the decades following political independence utilized heteropatriarchal family, utilized the, sorry, utilized the heteropatriarchal family and the Catholic Church's ideal of sexual morality in ways that were particularly oppressive for women. Ireland's status as a post-colonial state is also central to understanding this project. Post-colonial nationalism promoted Catholicism as a signifier of Irishness. Women were constructed as mothers and childbearers, dedicated to reproducing the next generation of the Irish nation, located either within private homes or in homes controlled by religious orders, with, uh, uh, um, controlled by uh, religious female religious orders. This constructed version of womanhood became elevated as a, symbol, as a symbol of Ireland's moral and cultural distinctiveness over its former colonial master, Britain. The post-colonial theorist Ashes Nandy in his study, The Intimate Enemy, 1984, argues that the colonial relationship is inevitably and profoundly gendered. Colonialism generates a gendered power relationship that constructs the colonizing power as masculine and dominant and the colonized as feminine and passive. Uh, Yuval Davis's work on gender and nationalism goes further by incorporating the question of reproduction into the framework of gender and nationalism, contending that when women are marginalized, it is women who reproduce nations biologically, culturally and symbolically while simultaneously remaining hidden in the various theorizations of nationalist phenomena. Um, the legal uh, scholar Ruth, Cop uh, Ruth Fletcher has deployed Yuval Davis's work to highlight how Irishness has been gendered and racialized through the regulation of women's reproductive capacities. Uh, though Fletcher develops this argument to illustrate how reproductive activities change the contours of the nation and the agendas of nationalism as much as they respond to them. In order to understand this, she argues, we need to consider how nation, gender, uh, reproduction and racism intersect in particular ways at particular moments. The intersection of these issues is evident in the most recent history of the abortion debate in Ireland, when reproductive politics became a site for struggle over definitions of Irishness, particularly during the citizenship referendum in 2000 and, uh, 2002. In Ireland, understandings of reproduction have, burden, have been burdened not only by the weight of the Irish-British distinction, but by a particular version of Irishness as race, uh, ethnicity, that is enshrined into a constitution that implicitly conceives our Irishness as Catholic, settled and white. The body of the pregnant woman and the fetus that she carries becomes the vehicle for the production of a national culture. Writing in an American context, uh, the scholar Lauren Berlant argues that it is a woman's body that bears the burden of keeping these gendered racial class ethnic and national identities stable and intelligible, an identity machine for others, producing children in the name of the future in service to the national culture whose explicit ideology of natural personhood she's also helping to generate. 
So too in Ireland, women's reproducing bodies would become both in early and contemporary debates around the foundation of the state, the medium through which competing national origin stories that focus on Irish national identity and cultural self-determination are imagined. The year 1983 saw the introduction of a constitutional ban on abortion, the Eighth Amendment, uh, following a bitterly divisive referendum campaign. The 43 words, the state acknowledges the right to life of the unborn and with due regard to the equal right to life of the mother, guarantees in its laws to respect and as far as practicable by its laws to defend and vindicate that right. These 43 words, known as the Eighth Amendment, established the equal, the equal right to life of the mother, the pregnant woman, and the unborn or fetus, dissolving the often invoked historical and nationalist dichotomy between mother as symbol and woman mother as person. The Eighth Amendment would remain in the Irish Constitution for 35 years and be subject to decades of feminist activism before um, it was um, it was removed um, by uh, in a you know uh, in a, in a referendum campaign in May uh, in May 2018. It was a campaign, obviously, three decades um, uh, in the making. Ireland was the first country in the world in the 1980s to give the fetus constitutional status. Although the move was reflective of wider arguments for fetal personhood that were happening internationally, particularly in the United States at the time. For Berlant, these kinds of laws render the pregnant woman increasingly invisible as she, quote, becomes the child to the fetus, becoming more minor and less politically represented than the fetus, which in turn, which is in turn made more national more central to securing the privileges of law, paternity, and other less institutional family strategies. The fetus conceived literally and metaphorically as a potential citizen, a sign of the reproduction of the nation. One of the key tropes in Irish nationalist anti-abortion discourse is the innocent fetus that like the Irish nation is under threat from corruptive outside forces. Feminist scholar and activist Alva Smith has argued that Ireland was often conceived of in extreme right ideology and politics as the last bastion in the battle to preserve the purity and sanctity of uh, the, traditional, uh, the traditional family. In this scenario, she writes, Ireland played the heroic role of the tiny beleaguered state staunchly defending the faith of our fathers and the invisibility of our mothers by holding out against the global wave of depravity which threatens to engulf it. And thus, somewhat illogically, Ireland shines as a beacon for all those in need of salvation. Those, especially women, who go the way of all flesh and choose divorce, contraception or abortion are therefore traitors to not just church, but also to state. It is women's agency which threatens the reproduction of the national patriarchy and must therefore be contained both within the heterosexual familial paradigm um, and through the limitation of their reproductive choices. So moving on to think about Ireland in relation to Antigone for a couple of minutes. So drama has long been recognized as a genre preoccupied with sacrifice. There's the very old ancient uh, idea of theater as a rite leading up to the immolation of a protagonist whose suffering purges the audience, an idea as old as Aristotle. Sacrifice was an important motif in Irish literature throughout the um, Irish literary revival and indeed beyond. The cult of blood sacrifice provided a literary model that writers and readers alike have returned to in their attempts to understand or sometimes represent Ireland and Irish history. Within the confines of that tradition, women are not symbolically eligible for the role of sacrificial victim, and playwrights have tended to be reluctant 
to allow them to fulfill it. When it, um, when it proceeds uh, from a female body, uh, Susan Cannon Harris notes that sacrificial blood becomes dirty through its association with sexuality. It means not redemption, but menstruation or defloration. Both of these events closely tied to women's reproductive function mark her body as irredeemably material and therefore resistant to idealization. The female's uh, victim's body does not disappear behind her transfigured image. It remains present, solid, weighed down with the burden of corporeality and stained with sex and gender. The sacrificial story, um, Harris reminds us, that gets played out in nationalist Irish drama requires a male victim whose body can be more easily translated. It also requires a female counterpart, the mother, wife, lover, who accepts the sacrifice and whose body can then fulfill the more natural role of transforming that death into a rebirth. Furthermore, as Harris notes, the sacrificial paradigm was popular among Irish nationalist audiences, in part because it reinforced um, these traditional gender roles. In the Irish theatrical tradition, Antigone is most notable for her absence on the Irish stage until her appearance in 1984. Her absence is noteworthy, indeed somewhat strange, considering that George Steiner, in his seminal study of the role of Antigone in Western thought and culture, estimates that the catalogue of Antigone versions and adaptations in Europe from the early modern period onwards runs into hundreds. Steiner's study was published in the um, early 1980s. We could, I think, today say that it runs into the thousands. It is both natural and economic, he states, to return to explore Antigone, each time conflicts of a historically and psychological analogous order, as in the religious wars of the 16th century or in the Paris of 1940 to 4, recur. So the history of Antigone on the Irish stage begins with her literal non-appearance. A version translated by Robert Gregory was scheduled for production by the Abbey Theatre on the 26th of January, uh, 1907. Um, but it was replaced uh, by Sings, the Playboy of the Western World. It's not entirely clear what happened to Antigone, although um, the drama critic uh, Christopher Murray speculates that it seemed that um, Singh, Yeats and Lady Gregory could not agree on a policy for the Abbey that would include the classics. And Singh in particular was particularly opposed um, uh, uh, to their appearance. Later Yeats himself translated two of the three uh, Theban plays uh, of Sophocles, Oedipus the King um, uh, produced in 1926 and Oedipus at um, in 1927. They were successfully staged, although Yeats never went to work on the third part of the trilogy of three Theban plays, Antigone. An adaptation of the Iris chorus from Antigone is incorporated as a, as a kind of coda to a woman young and old in The Winding Stair and other poems uh, published in 1933. But there doesn't appear to be any um, full version of the, uh, of, of the play. Uh, mythology, uh, Faustus in particular, was utilised by several Irish writers in the 1930s and 1940s. And by the late 1960s, a new generation of emerging writers, Thomas Kilroy, Brian Friel and Tom Murphy, were using classical and rom romantic models in their writing. When, I, when Antigone was first raised as a, it was as a political, uh, sorry, when Antigone was first raised as a political analogy, analogy in the Irish context, it was not as a play, but in a 1968 lecture by Conor Cruz O'Brien at Queen's University Belfast, where he identified Antigone's defiant stance against unjust law with the growing Northern Irish civil rights movement. O'Brien, however, was not celebrating this resistance. In fact, he saw the violence meted out to the protesters 
by the RUC and the British Army has sufficient evidence that they should have stayed at home in the first place. As noted earlier, there were three versions of Antigone in 1984. So Aidan Carl Matthews' um, uh, version of Antigone, which was uh, produced in the Project Art Centre, Tom Poland's The Riot Act, produced by Field Day, which was a touring production that uh, 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 toured across the 32 counties, and Brendan Kennelly's um, um, version of Antigone, which was completed um, in July 1984, but was not produced until April 1986 um, in the Peacock Theatre in Dublin. So this Orwellian year 1984 came three years after the hunger strikes, a year after the abortion referendum, the same year as the death of Anne Lovett and the Kerry Babies case, and the beginnings of the debate on the divorce referendum. Novelist Anne Enright expresses particularly well, I think, the sense of crisis-tinged misogyny that engulfed Irish society in the 1980s. She writes, Ireland broke apart in the 80s, and I sometimes think that crack happened in my own head. The constitutional row about abortion was a moral civil war that, that was fought out in people's homes, including my own with unfathomable bitterness. The country was screaming at itself about contraception, abortion, and divorce. It was a hideously misogynistic time. Many of the people I knew at college left the country in the 80s. The newspapers said that people emigrated for jobs, but most of the ones I knew left because they could not breathe anymore. They left because the place did not make sense. They ran away, as finally did I. It was in this climate that these three productions of Antigone um, emerged. All three versions of the play were written by male writers, none of which were playwrights uh, by note. Paulin and Kennelly were um, well-established and well-respected poets. And it was Matthew's first and only major production on the Dublin stage. Uh, Matthews went on to have a career in, as a radio dramist, an RTE producer and later novelist. Both Paulin and Matthew's versions were attendant to the well-trodden political dimensions of the play as a confrontation uh, between the individual and the state, an argument really fashioned um, um, in, the, um, in the 18th century by Hegel. Paulin's The Riot Act was essentially a response to Conor Cruz O'Brien and his apology, uh, apology for Creon and the justification for the oppression um, um, of the nationalist community by the Northern Irish Unionist state. Matthews was also overtly uh, uh, political in his version. Uh, the audience were handed copies of the criminal justice bill, which was being debated at the time. It was a bill that gave increased powers uh, to the Gardaí and to the, uh, essentially to the Irish state through the criminal justice system. And the bill was read at the end of the first act again during inter intermission, so that the lines between the past and present audience and stage became deliberately blurred. Neither version was particularly attendant to the gender dimensions of the play. Kennell Brendan Kennelly's version was different. Kennelly himself termed um, his version of the play as a feminist declaration of independence. Unlike Paul and, and Matthew's versions, where Antigone is defined by her speech acts, Canelli's Antigone is much quieter. She's an Antigone who's beaten, silenced, and buried in a black hole among the rocks, but who bows for nobody and nothing, Canelli writes. Canelli was pointing towards, um, and you know, he, he drew this out in, in several interviews around the play, was pointing towards what he saw was the conservative impulse to censorship rather than dialogue. Few critics appeared um, interested in the gender dimensions that uh, Kennelly was drawing his attention to um, and still continued to sort of interpret the play as a commentary um, on um, the debate around uh, um, the uh, Irish partition state, particularly um, in terms of um, the so-called troubles in Northern Ireland. Critics that did um, address the, uh, the gender dimensions of the play 
uh, tended to be quite dismissive. And indeed, um, some were outrightly hostile to Canelli's efforts. Um, they were kind of seen as a, a distraction or a kind of trivialization from the serious matter of the play. It would be almost 20 years before another version of Antigone was produced. And when Antigone returned to the Irish stage in the 2003 version by Colonel Morrison, followed in 2004 and, and a revival in 2008 by Seamus Heaney in his version, his, his, his quite lauded and celebrated version, The Burial at Thebes, which was the first Antigone performed on the Abbey stage. Both versions of the play, uh, Morrison and, and Heaney's, point to wider political issues. Again, the, uh, the gender dimensions of the play are not emphasized or explored in any, um, in any particular way, either at a textual level or in the, uh, in the productions. Morrison's play uh, um, version focuses on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And um, Heaney's um, version is, is quite attentive to uh, questions around the war on terror, which was, I suppose, the political, the global political context for the play, and points to questions around uh, around human rights, uh, uh, around issues around human rights. Fifteen years later, in October 29, 2019, Antigone again returned to the Irish stage, but in a dramatically altered political landscape. 2019 was the year following the groundswell of feminist activism that led to the repeal referendum in May 2018. Um, it was also um, the period of the global Me Too movement and of a huge um, emergence, which I suppose um, uh, kind of um, merged with the repeal movement, but around um, a movement around resisting violence against women. Um, particularly in light of the, uh, the Belfast uh, uh, rape trial. Throughout this period, um, what was coming to the foreground um, was, uh, was, was, women, uh, was women telling their stories. Their stories about um, how the Irish state, through its regulation of reproduction, um, its, um, uh, the uh, illegality of abortion, um, and just the generally, I suppose, repressive environment um, uh, for women um, historically in Ireland, women began to tell their stories. Um, I suppose in many ways, the, the kind of energy uh, and eruption that happened around the repeal movement gave that, um, uh, uh, gave that movement a certain clarity and, uh, and a, certain, uh, a certain energy. So within that context, that the most recent version of Antigone emerges. So this is a version um, entitled Pale Sister, by, uh, uh, written by uh, the novelist uh, uh, Colm Tobin. Uh, Tobin um, reimagines Antigone from the perspective of her sister Ismene. Now this has been a kind of, there, there is a kind of um, interest in this, I suppose, um, internationally, there's been a number of reimaginings of Antigone that have begun to kind of look at and reimagine the role of her sister Ismene. Uh, Tobin wrote it for the actress uh, Lisa Dwan, who recounts Antigone's defiance of the king as pressures mount on Ismene to act, to vindicate her sister, or even to follow her example. The, the actress, uh, the Irish actress Lisa Dwan, is, is known for her, her monologues, particularly in terms of the work of Samuel Beckett. And she is a very powerful presence on stage. So in, in choosing to um, develop this monologue um, uh, uh, for, uh, uh, for Lisa Dwan, um, Tobin was, I suppose, deliberately putting um, a, a, a very powerful voice onto uh, a kind of very singular, very powerful uh, uh, voice onto the, uh, uh, onto the stage. Um, a very different um, version of Ismene emerges to the one that we typically see in most versions of the play, where she is this kind of quiet, often silent um, uh, uh, woman who lives very much in the shadow of her sister, uh, Antigone. Pale Sister was written, was clearly written and shaped by the shadow of the national and global debates about gender and power, about abuse of power, about silence and speech, and about the role of the, uh, of the state 
um, in, uh, and its kind of collusion um, in terms of uh, maintaining uh, this gendered form of power. Tobin wrote um, at the time, he says, my interest in writing Pale Sister was to explore areas in public life and private conscience that remain indistinct. When I started the play, when Lisa Dwan and I began to work out its moral and political contours, I did not know what Ismene would do. I merely knew she would speak. In other versions, she had been mainly silent. Here, once she broke the silence, some power would have to be released. That was all I knew. So this is Lisa Dwan. So this is how the play, uh, these are the five, this comes from the um, some of the final pages um, of Tobin's uh, 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 Pale Sister. Throughout the play, um, Ismene performed by, as a monologue performed by um, uh, Lisa Dwan, basically recounts the events from her own perspective. Um, but then she, um, uh, the, the play concludes by her stating repeatedly through the final lines of the play, uh, the play, finding her voice and stating as an act of defiance uh, to Creon, uh, stating that she's not, uh, she's not afraid. So Ismene speaks at the end of Pale Sister and she is clear, clearly hurt, but what that means is not exactly clear. The play ends without engaging with the significance of her speech act and its potential transformative power. Perhaps because it is uh, still something that is unfolding and what comes after um, women have, sp uh, have spoken has um, the, it clearly un uh, unleashes a, a transformative possibility, but what that possibility um, will emerge as has yet to be, uh, has yet to be determined. So just in conclusion, I just want to spend the last minute or two just returning, I suppose, to Antigone um, uh, in terms of the kind of feminist political um, uh, uh, philosophical work that has grown up around her and consider her as a model for a radical political alternative, one that refuses, I suppose, to enlist the state as its agent one that resists and challenges the state. So Antigone is an icon of defiance. Indeed, she can be understood as an explicitly feminist icon. She admits to breaking the law while simultaneously denying the legitimacy of the same law. She then compounds her defiance of the king or the state's sovereignty by asserting her own sovereignty. Um, and then by demanding the power to author her own actions in word and deed, and to retain control over them. What I suppose is not clear is whether she can escape the forms of power that she opposes. Her acts of defiance results in her death and reveals how society or the state obstructs our ability to imagine or to alternatives and to understand our ability to act to a political agenda. In her study of Antigone, Judith Butler invites us to consider the limits of the state for feminist purpose. She argues that Antigone cannot make her claim outside the language of the state, but neither can um, the claim that she wants to be fully assimilated by the state. Butler asks, can there be kinship? And by kinship, I do not mean the family in any specific form without the support and mediation of the state. And whether there can be the state without the family as its support and mediation. And further, when kinship comes to pose a threat to state authority and the state itself in violent struggle against kinship, can these terms sustain their interdependence from one another? What um, Butler is pointing to through the prism of Antigone is, I think, a powerful uh, problem that feminist uh, political theory has had to navigate and negotiate. And it is something I suppose that all Irish activists are in some way familiar with. How do you navigate a state that um, opposes you 
Do you simply sidestep the state? Do you try and reform the state? Or do you look beyond the state? More recently, I suppose, um, feminist theory has, um, in the last, I suppose, kind of uh, 10 years or so, um, it has uh, probably t t the last two decades, really, I suppose, has begun to kind of form alliances with the state in many ways. And that has, I think, particularly uh, recently, um, as, um, as we've seen in terms of kind of movements against sexual violence, um, against misogyny, um, in, in the context of uh, the abortion referendum, in the context of the Me Too movement, we've come up, I suppose, against the limits of the state as a, as a transformative um, political project for women. Um, Judith Butler, um, in her kind of framing of Antigone, um, argues that this is, I suppose, what moved her to think about Antigone. Because she says, I began to think about Antigone a few years ago, as I wondered what happened to those feminist efforts to confront and defy the state. It seemed to me that Antigone might work as a counterfigure to the trend championed by kind of recent, I suppose, liberal feminism she's referring to here, to seek the backing and the authority of the state to implement feminist policy aims. The legacy of Antigone's defiance appeared to be lost in the contemporary efforts to recast political opposition as legal pliant and to seek legitimacy in the state in the espousal of feminist claims. Um, this is a, a risky, I suppose, political project, and it has created uh, an uneasy alliance, I think, between, uh, between certain forms of feminism, probably more kind of liberal or hegemonic forms of feminism, and in particular, the neoliberal state. That's why I think Butler's argument is so important because she argues for an, uh, uh, for an Antigone uh, figure in feminist politics that points somewhere else. A return, I think, to the more imaginative and transformative projects um, of uh, associated with, with, uh, with, second uh, with second wave feminism that understood that in order to, um, to, tra to transform um, the, uh, the gendered relationships um, in society and in the state, we had to have a much more ambitious, more transformative project that moved, uh, that looked for something beyond um, an accommodation with the status quo. Antigone is a figure, I would argue, for feminist politics that points somewhere else, not to a politics as a question of representation, but to a transformative political possibility that emerges when the limits to representation and represent, uh, representability are exposed. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Besieged Bodies, Gendered Violence, Sexualities and Motherhood, the Women's History Association of Ireland's annual conference for 2020-2021. You can listen to podcasts of keynotes and many other papers from the conference on historyhub.ie.